The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The Glenn Beck Program. I expect the media to be anti-Trump, but I am so sick and tired of this media doing anything to discredit Donald Trump. You dare to try to tell us that you're telling us the truth when you come out and say the president is calling all immigrants animals and you're baffled why the American public is turning their backs on you? The Glenn Beck Program. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Another week has passed, and it's great to be with you again. If you're new, I hope you're looking for a voice that's bold, that uh, is not afraid to take on the most controversial issues of the day, and a voice that happens to be an American Muslim who takes seriously my responsibility living in the lap of freedom to counter Islamist tyranny wherever it may exist, here at home or abroad. Week to week, I look through and bring to you those controversial areas that may have been covered by others or may not, uh, but uh, we address in a way that looks not only at the problem, but at a solution. And that's what reformation is all about. That's what I think has been long overdue for the Muslim community. Well, there certainly this has not been an uninteresting week. And sure enough, uh, a few days ago, The President of the United States did go ahead and have his iftar. What is an iftar? Iftar is Arabic for the evening dinner that we Muslims have and when we break our fast at sunset. And in this month of Ramadan, we are now entering the last uh, 10 days of that fast, uh, a 30-day fast of the ninth month of the lunar calendar of the Islamic calendar. And... Day to day, we recite the Qur'an, we get closer to God, we seek repentance, we seek atonement, we seek through fasting, through from bread, from water, from food, from sustenance, and from all those things that we may seek in pleasure to get closer to God. And the iftar is a time to join family, to join community, to eat that date in which you break your fast, to drink that juice in which you break your fast and come together. Well, last year, the Islamist groups protested, said how on earth could the President of the United States cancel a tradition that became a tradition of the White House, which was to have a Ramadan iftar. And listen, I've actually always had some heartburn regarding the White House having iftar, whether it was Obama, whether it was Bush, And I think the tradition was started by the Clinton administration. I might be wrong. Uh, But the bottom line is, is that if you're going to invite American Muslim leaders, perhaps that's fine. You highlight those Muslims that need a leg up, those Muslims that need to be recognized as being significant assets to our culture, to our society, and also to the issues that matter regarding national security and the battle against Islamism. But as we saw under the Obama administration, he invited comedians, athletes, uh, folks that really were about culturally being Muslim, that were uh, about uh, iconic symbolism of being Muslim, uh, but uh, there was nothing really ideological. When you went to the ideological He brought the same old characters of Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups, being Muhammad Majid from the Islamic side of North America, being uh, the Muslim Public Affairs Council and other of sundry Islamic groups. Then the president in his first year, President Trump, said, you know, I don't know what his rationale was, but bottom line is he decided to cancel it. But we also know in these White House iftars, it's not just about American Muslims. Most of the invitation list was foreign embassies, ambassadors, representatives of tyrannies, of monarchies that are autocratic and ruthless, many of whom are certainly our allies. So I get sort of the cultural respect for interfaith commonality, 
But that's sort of what the State Department's iftar is all about. And you can look it up. The State Department every year has an iftar. I've been to that one uh, two or three times. I was on the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom, and I was invited to that iftar as a result of my membership on that commission. No, I was never invited to Secretary Kerry's or Secretary Clinton's iftar because I run the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, a reformist organization dedicated to separating mosque and state, dedicated to defeating Islamist influences in America and abroad. So that would have been contrary to the Clinton Foundation's obsequious fealty to Qatar, to the Saudis, to other regimes. Also contrary to Secretary Kerry's fealty to Iran, to uh, a, a host of entities that are contrary to those who believe in the advancement of freedom within Muslim communities. And certainly the last administration did everything possible to suppress, if not destroy, the voices of freedom in the Muslim community abroad and at home by doing everything, leaving everything at the altar of the Iran deal. But now we have President Trump. This year he decided to have an iftar. So the same Islamists that were so upset at the cancellation, oh, oh, the horror of an iftar dinner being canceled, now said that they were not going to attend, that they were going to protest. And at Lafayette Square, not far from the White House, they were going to have a saying uh, that uh, protested saying dubbed not Trump's iftar. This is led by the Council for American Islamic Radicalization, CARE. And now they prefer to call it relations, but I never understood how American Islam could have relations if we are supposed to be Americans who happen to be Muslim. They're not two separate entities. Eh, anyway, bottom line is, is that care and its Islamist hacks will find no nothing beneath them in exploiting anything possible. So the president decides to have an iftar. They now don't want to go. Not that they would ever be invited, but they're going to protest and say that he shouldn't have had it. So is it he should have or, or he shouldn't have had it? I don't think they can make up their mind. And then they found out, I'm sure, on Wednesday morning when it was released that there were only 30 to 40 attendees and they were going to all be ambassadors from Muslim-majority countries, most of which are tyrannies. I wonder if CARE ran into overdrive trying to figure out, well, should we still protest it? These are people that we don't want to offend. We don't want to offend the Saudis or the Qataris or the Egyptians. What, what should we do? Yeah, you know, this is the problem when you your organization has a building owned by a Gulf state. Now, let's step back for a second and talk about should the White House be having an iftar where it recognizes foreign countries? Again, I think that's the State Department's role. I think the White House, as our president, should be embracing our American faith community. Now, unless they're ready to begin to have the courage and the details and the explanation as to which groups get invited and which don't, it's better not to and just go ahead and invite ambassadors. But, uh, you know, you, I was tweeting out sort of what I thought to be sarcastic comments about what would might have been said or overheard at the White House iftar. Because, you know, listen, on the day of the iftar, President Trump made another pardon, this time led by a celebrity request from Kim Kardashian. So, you know, sort of in the spirit of pardons, I would have loved to have seen President Trump open the White House iftar by telling the ambassadors from Islamic tyrannies, before you break your fast, before you eat that first date, call your head of state and ask him to pardon one prisoner of conscience. Ambassador from Saudi Arabia, call King Salman and tell him to release Rafe Bedoui. The ambassador from Qatar, ambassador from Egypt, release a journalist. 
release many of the journalists that you've put in prison. Might not be very hospitable, but dictators don't deserve necessarily hospitality of respect for their dictatorship, but respect for humanity, for individualism, and for freedom. That respect would be part of that request. But I'm sure that didn't happen. So we get back to, you know, listen, I'm glad I didn't get an invite this year. And obviously they only invited ambassadors from foreign countries, nothing domestic. So that's not a surprise. But, you know, should, you know, in some ways, I hope all of you realize that there is no better metaphor to the pathology of the condition of the Muslim consciousness today than the fact that when the leader of the free world, and this is not only Trump, Trump basically made it more obvious by only inviting ambassadors, but Obama and Bush before them, out of the 50, 60 people in the room, 45 or so were ambassadors. The other 10 or 15 were selected Muslims from MPAC, Congressman Ellison, Congressman Andre Carson, and other Islamist sympathizers with their apologists. So, so when these folks are invited, is there a better metaphor? Is there a clearer metaphor than the fact that the establishment, the Islamic establishment, that tortures and pillages their population, that keeps them unable to create new ideas, free market ingenuity, and and have any of the substrate of a free society that has paralyzed them in the 13th and 14th century, thus becomes the de facto representatives for a interfaith occasion at the White House. The People's House of the Presidency of the Leader of the Free World then becomes a recognition in its engagement with Muslims and Islam, that the tyrants of our country, of our countries of origin, become the representatives of our societies and our religion. There's no better metaphor. So, memo to the president and every other president from both parties: in the future, if you're going to have iftars, invite reformers. Look at the Oslo Freedom Forum and see the work that they've done to bring out dissidents and highlight them. They don't highlight tyrants. They highlight dissidents. And there are many Muslim dissidents in the West, feminists, activists for free speech, for liberty, that are Muslim. Why not have a Ramadan iftar dinner that is like the the Davos of freedom so that you can talk to Muslims who celebrate their faith but reject Islamist tyranny? President Trump, that would be that would be an iftar that I would want to attend and, and would be upset if I didn't get an invitation to. As much as I love and admire the President of the United States and, and love my country, I'm not necessarily looking to sit with the ambassador from Saudi Arabia or any other Islamist tyranny. This is Zudi Jastrow. We'll be right back on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. Pat Gray. Yeah, Cruz. Mm-hmm. Mike Lee. Ben Sass. Mm-hmm. Rand Paul. Mm-hmm. Marco Rubio. Yeah, there's that guy in Idaho, Rish. I was just going to say, yeah. My gosh, Tim Scott, South Carolina. No, Tim Scott's pretty good. Okay. All right. And done. And one. now we're done. Okay, okay so we got a whopping six yeah! senators. Six. Out of a hundred. We got six. Pat Gray. Weekdays from noon to 3 Eastern, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It is always wonderful to be with you. We were talking about the White House iftar. Let me just tie this uh, conversation up a little bit. And, you know, it's fascinating. You look at the interview that uh, um, CNS News did with me, and uh, they also uh, queried Ibrahim Hooper. And I made the point that it's sort of bizarre that if the President of the United States and the White House want to celebrate our faith and recognize Islam, they have an iftar dinner. Doesn't it seem sort of shameless 
if not uh, bizarrely against the spirit of Ramadan to say not Trump's iftar. Remember, President Trump is our president. He's having a recognition of that spiritual breaking of a fast that means a lot to us Muslims. So I just didn't understand the the in-your-face protestations, which I can't find any element that would appeal to a Islamic tradition where the Prophet Muhammad, we are taught, would even seek to have repeated conversations to treat with respect even those who are atheists or pagans who rejected Islam and otherwise that if, if truly you believe Islam is an, is an open faith, Muslims are open to engagement. If the president of your country decides to have an iftar, you then protest it simply cheap. You, you then simply hold a cheap protest. That's bizarre. It would seem to me to be un-Islamic. And then when Hooper hears this, and I asked for their fatwa, he responds with four Quranic quotations, two of which, by the way, are also on our homepage, <laughs> and not on his homepage, by the way, at the Council on American-Islamic Relations. But, but ultimately, he puts the one that we have, which is at the top of our website. It says, O ye who believe, stand out firmly for justice as witnesses to God, even as against yourselves or your parents or your kin, and whether it be against rich or poor. Chapter 4, verse 135. Now, he's using that and then a few other passages from the Quran. Nothing about Ramadan. Nothing about the spirit of an interfaith iftar, which is really what I was talking about. This is just about general principles. So these guys can exploit an attempt by our president of our country. Now, I certainly think that it would be appropriate at the iftar dinner to demand that prisoners of conscience be released, that you hold these tyrannies accountable. But in our own country... If you love being American and you're patriotic and you're president, and this is similar actually to the sentiment. Uh, now, I'm not saying that I endorse all the behavior of President Trump about the way he responded to the Philadelphia Eagles and other things, but the exploitation of a national moment that we come together, the anthem, the, the uh, visiting of the White House, things that are done to transcend partisan differences in which sports athletes go and regardless of the party in the White House participate in a respectful ceremony in which they honor the winner of the Super Bowl, the winner of the NBA Finals on and on just like the National Anthem honors our country at the beginning of every game but no, it has been cheapened to a issue of the day exploitation for political one-upsmanship so if Colin Kaepernick wants to make a point about police brutality, then everybody's supposed to divert. Now, he may have a point. We don't want to even get into the debate about that. But don't we all have 10, 12 issues that we care about, that I care about, that you care about, from uh, any minority disputes to uh, to uh, um, a, a whole host of of issues to health care, taxation, defense, foreign policy, so many things. Are we are we all going to be kneeling for various issues? It doesn't make sense. Should the entire audience turn their back because of whatever issues they believe in? There are things that are just not germane to political division and balkanization. And I felt that the Iftar dinner was that and uh, Hooper's response with passages to CNS News about his fetwa proves that he does think he's an armchair uh, uh, cleric. He does believe that his Islam is the only Islam. And he does believe that he can use the platform of Muslim representation, of Islamic respect for his own Hamas ophelia, his own agenda and his own anti-Semitism and disgustingly anti-American approach to who we are as American Muslims. So I think their entire protest sort of proved how low their movements are. Uh, it uh, has proven uh, to have had no impact whatsoever. Um, now, I hope the White House iftar evolves. 
into a representation of reformers, of dissidents, of those who reject the Islamist mantra. We'll see. I'm not exactly enamored by having it be another opportunity to say that the Muslim dictators of the world represent Muslims. So, another thing I think, speaking of dictators, a story came out this week at fastcompany.com, and, you know, they really made a point I've made actually multiple times on Twitter, which is, why doesn't Twitter suspend the Iranian president's Twitter account? He blocks every other user in the entire country from using Twitter. He constantly puts out tweets about basically invoking genocide against the Jewish people, talking about destroying Israel, talking about Jews in a way that is profane and inhumane. And yet, Twitter continues to actually give him a blue check mark. And, and endorse in many ways his ability to use their platform. So what is Twitter's policy We're talking about, or Facebook's policy, when it comes to which voices it will suppress and which ones it doesn't? This is why the slippery slope of hate speech they're getting into right now, uh, deleting accounts and other things. I completely agree with the limitation and the removal of privileges by those who invoke violence. But I do have a, a, a problem with the belief that certain speech becomes hate speech because we're finding that the Palestinian mantras are, are given a huge leeway to, to promote things that I feel at times is militaristic and terroristic, while the pro-democracy, the pro-Israel advocates find themselves often banned. I think it has to do with those who do the filtering. Last, speaking of which, this week we saw as the soccer world enters the last week before World Cup 2018, which, by the way, is going to be held in Russia, you saw a protest. Argentina was set to play Israel in Jerusalem. Now, initially it was in Haifa, and there were reports that there was no controversy. They were going to play them in Israel. And then ultimately they decided to move it to Jerusalem in a stadium there that was very fitting. And the BDS movement went into gear, and domestically in Argentina and around the world, you saw threats of violence, you saw bloody shirts of the lead player, one of the, the most um, renowned soccer player on the planet, being waved as in, in a threatening fashion, and the players one by one said they would not go to Jerusalem, so the game was canceled. So this BDS movement, the boycott, divest movement of, of militant radicals who claim to be peaceful, I think proved what they're all about. They're a bunch of hypocritical, cheap, anti-Semitic folks who love to light matches on radical Islamists and bully folks into trying to marginalize Israel. And I think, you know, they were high-fiving one another and saying that the cancellation of a match was a proof that they are winning, when in fact I think in the long term it's a loss for the Palestinian people. It proves the radicalism of BDS and exposes the cheapness of their movement. Because if they were not hypocrites, and if they wanted... Now, I'm totally against the exploitation of sports events, as I mentioned before. I am against the exploitation of sports events for a political movement. I think especially when you're talking international games that ultimately can be the substrate of bringing countries together and bringing about reform. So I say, game on, forget the politics, forget even the inhuman disgraces that can happen in the prisons of Saudi Arabia, in the prisons of Qatar, Iran, and elsewhere. Sports is sports. So, Yet, the Argentinians pulled out from a match before it was going to go to the World Cup coming up next week in Russia. 
So if ever there was a reason Muslims and people of conscience should boycott, it should be not going to the entire World Cup in Moscow. The genocide in Syria would not have been half of what it is today if it weren't for the Russian bolstering of Bashar Assad and his killing machines. Assad would have ended a long time ago. And the Putin strategy of thousands of their troops bolstering and protecting the Assad regime, allowing Hezbollah and militants to come from Iran, the Iranian Republican Guard, allowing Sunni militants from Chechnya to come down and fight with ISIS to legitimize further destruction of the Syrian society. All of this has proven that Russia is an evil actor in Syria. And yet we're going to go cheer on. The world will be clapping as the World Cup takes place in Moscow and in Russia. So there's a hypocrisy there. The only de true democracy in the Middle East, Israel, Argentina pulls out. And let's not forget Argentina back when the bombing of the Jewish center, the synagogue, happened in '94. They still haven't brought whoever committed that to justice. We know that Iran, Hezbollah, and others have influenced what happened there. So this is a country that I think has still has amends to make for some of what it's allowed to happen on its soil in the way of anti-Semitism and acts of violence against them. But at the end of the day, they acquiesced. They bowed to pressure. And what does that tell Arab militants? It tells them that they get a veto. They get a right to do whatever they want to suppress the free world from recognizing Jerusalem as the capital, to recognizing Israel as a regular, normal country and democracy. And they say, oh, it's about human rights, when in fact their hypocrisy is legion. Their hypocrisy when it comes to their own Islamist regimes, when it comes to Russia next week with the World Cup is legion. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This, and we'll be right back. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. You know, it's the one-year anniversary of the attacks in Manchester on the Ariana Grande concert um, in May 22, 2017. It claimed 22 lives, injured hundreds. And as you may recall, the ISIS perpetrators attacked her fans as they flee, as they were leaving the concert. So uh, they weren't able to get the explosives into the concert, but attacked them in their egress. Ariana Grande this week in an interview talked about how she revealed that she has PTSD after Manchester bombing. And she said, I don't know how I'll ever know. I don't think I'll ever know how to talk about it and not cry. In an interview with British Vogue, she said she had been struggling with symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder following last year's suicide bomb attack at the end of her concert at Manchester Arena. She's 24. She said she doesn't like to talk about it because so many people suffered the worst fate that claimed 22 lives. So she's reached out to the victims. She's uh, been quite active she had a benefit concert for them right afterwards so she's done her share to help those who were victimized by the terrorists who attacked one of the iconic things that describe western culture which are rock concerts and especially her concert which was called the dangerous woman tour and what more metaphorical attack upon western culture than to attack a rock concert led by a woman who called it the Dangerous Woman Tour. Now, as you may recall, last year I talked to you about how I had put together a video plea. Our organization had had asked Ariana Grande to use her platform of millions 
of followers on Twitter and social media to engage, to engage on the issue of need for Islamic reform and the issue of ideology. Nothing happened. So I ask you again, is there is there any better metaphor of how dysfunctional, how how much of a lack of leadership, and how misdirected our culture is than a year later, the person most fitting to lead youth towards change, towards transformation, towards understanding the, the challenge that we have against Islamist theocracy, against cultures in which now we saw just last two weeks ago, a cell of women who were going to plot a bombing against a British museum. ISIS radicals that were women. So what more metaphorical difference do you want between a culture of Western freedom that, that tries, that believes in the equality of men and women, and constantly, as we see even more recently with the Me Too movement, etc., has been trying to make sure we live up to that ideal, even though we fall short often, compared to a medieval culture of Saudi Wahhabism, of Degobandism in, in the, in the Indo-Pakistani region, Afghani region, and the uh, Muslim Brotherhood areas of uh, Egypt, on and on. The Islamists treat women as second, third class citizens. They, they do not give them bodily autonomy. They do not give them property rights. They do not give them the ability to have an equal vote and an equal voice in the court system or in the leadership of their governments. And yet, ISIS attacks the very central element of freedom, which is music and, and uh, mixing between sexes and, and uh, enjoyment for youth. And Ariana Grande now is the one who's the victim, who's suffering from PTSD, who can't even talk about it who's been stifled and paralyzed to even have a conversation with the West about what it was that attacked us and what she went through. She wasn't even in the stadium when it happened. So, you know, I understand the the pressure she's been through. I understand she's not, it's not her role to talk about countering theological or political, theopolitical ideologies. But... Listen, where we are getting decimated in this battle, we are getting decimated on the cultural battlefield. That cultural battlefield where women are being radicalized, where the, the Islamist imams, who, by the way, are also horrifically misogynistic, as we're seeing with Tariq Ramadan, as we're seeing with some of the other imams in the West that have now been shown to be exploiters of women but it goes well beyond that the sharia state the interpretations of sharia in which you have imams like zakar naik who will give you a detailed explanation of how it's appropriate to beat a woman with a stick as long as you don't lift your elbow from your waist and that explanation is given over and over by neanderthals in the name of islam so if we're going to defeat that, we can't just do it in the hearings of Congress. We can't just do it in the talking heads of news stations. It has to be done on the cultural battlefield, on Instagram, on Twitter, in music and art and poetry, and with our icons. I love, you know, it's amazing. You follow me on Twitter, you'll see how many people criticize me for making this statement on Twitter. When I in many ways said, you know, listen, I get that she was wounded uh, emotionally, but talk about snowflakes. This is a woman making money hand over fist, tens of tens of millions in her music, and she can't find a way to play a role in history in which she realizes that the, the militants that attacked her concert were a byproduct of a cancerous ideology whose only a few cells had spread upon her concert in Manchester, but millions have spread ideology and militancy across the planet, and that is radical Islamism. But no. So 
I get criticized that I'm expecting too much from a 24-year-old, and it is absurd for Zudi Jasser to say that this is the role for Ariana Grande. Well, hold on a sec. They, do, they, they seem to step up to the plate when you're talking about gun violence. They seem to step up to the plate when you're talking about, about Me Too movements. They seem to step up to the plate when you're talking about President Donald Trump. So be it. They seem to step up the plate when you're talking about the the national anthem and and uh, violence against the black community by police. And I'm not even going to get into the details of each of those arguments, other than to say that those are adult arguments with very complicated controversies that they are choosing to engage in. And yet, the Islamist problem is just a theopolitical aberration that nobody should really attach to any Islamist ideologies, let alone anybody that happens to be within the Muslim community, because we may offend them. We don't care about offending folks that believe in free societies and their Second Amendment. We don't care about offending folks that want to unite our populations under the national anthem. We don't care about offending... Any other interest group that the left seems to want to use celebrity and stardom to be part of their movements? No. But when it comes to Muslims, they're a protected class. We will not address their grievances. In fact, we will let them say that their grievances dominate all others and start using terms like Islamophobia, etc. And you see... Uh, apparent criminals like Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who who has has been involved in what appeared to be an IT ring of Pakistani Americans that now have fled to Pakistan, that are under investigation for what happened and to the breach of data in Congress, and we now saw audio in which Debbie Wasserman Schultz initially was telling folks with expletives that if, if they start to investigate these individuals, they will she will expose them as blanking Islamophobes. And you think this is irrelevant to the one-year anniversary of Manchester? It is very relevant. Because as a culture, we have to figure out, are we going to get in the mosh pit of music and art and dance and popular opinion and begin to tug at the heartstrings of our youth and tell them that there's a battle raging globally about faith identity, about national identity, and the role of religious law in society. Countries like Saudi Arabia are already too far gone. Countries like Tunisia are struggling with it in a massive struggle. Countries like the United States and Britain and Canada are completely asleep and anesthetized. And if we wake them up, political correctness needs to get a second, uh, second seat, a back seat, and we need to begin to have a national conversation. And victims like Ariana Grande and her fans need to become leaders, no different than the school kids in, uh, uh, in Florida have become icons for leading whatever cause they believe in. The Manchester victims should have been, they lost an opportunity to have been leaders in a cause against political Islam, against Islamism and its root cause of radicalization that creates monsters that believe it is appropriate to bomb young boys and girls coming out of a concert, listening to music on a Dangerous Woman tour. And if you think that is politically incorrect and offensive, then you are un-American and you really are ignorant about the root cause of radical Islam. We need to get together as a culture to begin to fight this and expose that it's not just violent Islamism that comes out of nowhere. It is nonviolent theocracy that's radicalizing our youth. And I fear for my children, I fear for our country, that until we get this right, we're going to continue to be hit with this whack-a-mole program until we begin to address the cancer, the root cause. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. We'll be right back. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc. Oh. Me and Mia went over the list. Oh, who's she paying to? The government? HR. Or? Oh my gosh, this is great. This is great. 
So I told her I had to pay $45 because I said ass. Like, What's the? And I was like, I can't tell you the big words, but 150 is the top. You do not want to pay 100. I got her to admit that could, you could that she's like I could see myself just giving HR my paycheck. The morning blaze, weekday morning six to nine Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This. In this last segment, I want to revisit one of the specific lenses through which Syria was looked at. I know you and I have talked about that quite a bit. I have family there and and have been uh, quite versed with many of the options and what we could have, what we didn't do, what we should have done, etc. I certainly have my opinions, and many of you, I'm sure, disagree with some and may agree with others. But nothing has brought me to have more nausea if not emesis, than reading excerpts of Ben Rhodes' forthcoming book, The World As It Is. And it appears that Ben Rhodes' primary job is laundering, laundering the reality of exactly what happened. And you saw this week a release from The Atlantic, an excerpt of this fiction, of this complete unadulterated lie after lie after lie written by Ben Rhodes, in which he exaggerates the emotional empathy of President Obama. And I know for a fact it's exaggeration. Why? Because this same individual, this same president, and his sycophants like Ben Rhodes, who are corrupt by the way they reproduce information into a propagandistic uh, a version fit for the Chinese uh, government, fit for the Russians, fit for any type of revisionist history. And he talks in the Atlantic about how inside the White House during the Syrian red line crisis. Now, you could believe this if you weren't conscious during the last administration, if you didn't understand that we had flown pallets of cash to Iran, that ultimately there wasn't a damn thing President Obama was going to do for the Syrian people in the name of human rights and in the name of that red line he had promised the world he would not let Assad cross that would jeopardize what he felt was his legacy with regard to the Iran deal and the machinations of Valerie Jarrett and others who, as you know, Valerie Jarrett uh, had lived in Tehran for some time, and this, this bizarre switch from a policy for many administrations that was more Sunni-based, that created a balance in the Middle East, and now we abandon the Sunni governments, Saudi Arabia and Egypt and the Emirates and others, and we approached with a, with a bizarre blind philia, the Khomeinists. That's what the red line avoidance was all about. But no, Ben Rhodes in his disgustingly, disgusting revision of what actually happened talks about how basically they had stepped towards military action. He said then they stepped back. And he talked about how President Obama warned him and said, do you know, maybe we just predicted the American people wrong. So here's the moral group that now is sort of scratching their heads and saying, did we overestimate the American people? Are you kidding me? So now his lack of action and then his loss his party's loss in the election is because he expected too much of the American people. So not only are they liars in a fiction that's being woven in this, this horrific book that I don't even want to pay for, but they're also insulting and patronizing the American, American people. You could say this is in a more artful way than Hillary Clinton did it, which Hillary Clinton just obviously tells the American people they're a bunch of uh, uh, misogynists because they didn't vote for a corrupt woman. But at the end of the day, the American people are smarter than that. 
the American people realize that whether Obama patronizes them, Hillary Clinton patronizes them, whoever it may be that's patronizing them, it's still patronization and ridicule. And Ben Rhodes then goes on about how he just struggled. He struggled with his own creeping suspicion that Obama was right in his reluctance to intervene militarily in Syria. Maybe we couldn't do much to direct events inside the Middle East. Maybe U.S. military intervention in Syria would only make things worse. Oh, woe is me. How passive-aggressive is that? you got to give credit to folks like uh, isolationists, non-interventionists like Rand Paul and others who said, you know, we should never go in no matter what happens. We never have any, any, anything to gain by going into Syria. There's no American interest there. He doesn't care if they gas the entire population of 20 million people. It doesn't matter to folks like Rand Paul. We should not go in. At least that is honestly, honestly, horrifically isolationist and doesn't see America having any moral or ethical role in the world. That's fine. I can get that. We can argue that and we can make a long argument. I've made arguments against that on this program before. But you have somebody like Obama who wants to, on the one hand, pretend to be empathic so he can justify that completely absurd Nobel Peace Prize that he got. And then on the other hand, do nothing while he gives subservience and appeasement unprecedented proportions to the Khomeinis in which he was handed the worst deals we could ever have had, no congressional approval of the deal, pallets of cash, no restrictions on their foul play of terrorism with, with short, medium, and, and not even long-range missiles, removal of sanctions, companies moving into Tehran and others, opening up their economy, not for their people, but for their militaristic, terroristic regime that remained belligerently anti-Semitic, anti-Western. No, that doesn't matter. He still belabored over what to do in Syria. He didn't even give a, a, a rat's you-know-what about what was happening because he was never going to do anything because he knew that Iran had him, and they said, probably told him many times if he ever touched one hair on an Assad regime military uh, 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 soldier or on a Russian or on an Iranian Hezbollah operative in Syria that the deal would be over. So Obama pulled back, as did Clapper, as did the entire NSC, and as he told the military to pull back. Rhodes lectures us in the Atlantic, an excerpt from his book, that I felt the burden on Obama. He had to respond to this awful event in Syria while bearing the additional weight of the war in Iraq, which caused his own intelligence community to be cautious, his military to be wary of a slippery slope, his closest allies to distrust the U.S. military adventures in the Middle East, the press to be more skeptical of presidential statements, the public to oppose U.S. wars overseas, and Congress to see matters of war and peace as political issues to be exploited. So, and he goes on. And, you know, listen, this is not just Obama trying to get Republicans. He, he Remember, Obama pitched it back to Congress. And other than Adam Kinsinger and a few other Republicans, none of them wanted to support Obama. But on the other hand, he never really made much of a case for it. He never even sent much of his staff into Congress to push for it. It was the ultimate in passive-aggressive pol political leadership, or lack thereof. Talk about leading from behind. He didn't only lead from behind in Europe. He led from behind in the White House and in Congress. Many of you may say, well, Obama's gone. President Trump has been in charge now for a year and a half. What is the relevance the relevance is that history books are being written and will be written about the disaster that is Syria. President Trump has been left with very little to work with there. Now, he also is not one big on interventionism, but approaches it from a much more poignantly muscular perspective in which he allowed the DOD to do what they needed. I don't think it achieved much. I do think that at least it allowed us globally that when America says something, we mean it. 
So we've reestablished credibility about presidential statements about red lines, and I think President Trump did do that. Did he do much for Syria? No, I don't think so. But he would argue that that's not our role. I would argue that we do have a responsibility and we do have a role there. But that is a completely different argument to be made than the revisionist history that we're seeing from this 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 rag of a book that Ben Rhodes is putting out, the insult on the intelligence of the American people and the deception. So when you talk about lies coming out of the White House, uh, you always hear uh, from the left now all over MSNBC and CNN, etc., the, the pass that they give, the revisionist history about what happened in Syria, I can tell you to most Syrian Americans that I know is not being missed. It doesn't get past us to know the reality of what President Obama did in Syria and the reality of the lies being perpetrated by Ben Rhodes, who's now on payroll with NBC, Chuck Todd and the others. As the expert, look at his resume. And what kind of expert he is on national security, proven to be a failure. So, we now see pieces being written about Syria that say, the world learns to live with Assad in Syria, as the Washington Post's Ishan Yahrur wrote. Again, I find that insulting. The world learns to live. Change that from Assad to learns to live with Hitler in Germany. Learns to live with Pol Pot learns to live with Stalin. And then we also saw pieces that talked about America's cash for genocide program in Syria. Lee, Lee Smith wrote about it in Tablet Magazine this week, and, and basically he echoed what I've just been talking to you about, the fact that America paid cash to give Iran and Assad the green light to commit suicide, to commit genocide. That was our policy in Syria. This is what's being written now because the facts are coming out about what happened as the details are released from, from uh, data being put out by the State Department, by the executive branch, NSC, and others. This is the reality. So we need to understand it so that we don't make the same mistakes again. It is relevant to policy today so that we don't make mistakes again. We talk about the economy today and we argue, is this a product of Obama's economy or is this Trump's economy? So it's important to review what was Obama's behavior in his first administration, second administration that led to either the economic successes or the economic failures. Similar with foreign policy, the successes or failures in the Middle East today, how much of it is due to Obama's policy versus Trump's policy. And I can tell you the cash, the genocide program in Syria was real about how President Obama approached Syria. Thanks for listening again. As always, stay safe. God bless. We'll see you next week. Zudi Jastron Reform This. <laughs> You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jesser. The Blaze Radio Network.